Hello and welcome to Tea Time Theology. I'm Ivy Swinsky and today's guest is the Reverend Peter Turney and we will be talking about rituals and talisman. Hi Peter. Hello Ivy. What a pleasure to be here today. <laughs> Thanks. Um, let's start with your Bible quote. Very good. So this is from Psalm 96 verse 9. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Let the whole earth tremble before him. And why did you pick that? Well, I think the whole idea of um, of ritual is to aid us in worshiping God. It's not that our worship always takes place in the context of ritual or ceremony or uh, or in community. Sometimes we worship, you know, individually on our own. But our experiences of ritual help to put us in connection with God and with the divine and lead us to worship in whatever way makes the most sense for us. And worship is meant to be beautiful. And yeah. I think that's really important. However, you know, however beauty touches each individual soul, you know, the beauty of the Lord and the beauty of our, um, our relationship with God should somehow come through in our worship, whatever form it takes. Awesome. Um, so I took mine a little differently. Mm -hmm. I have a secular quote, um, but it, it also ties in more to the experience I had with it. So mine is from a, a show called Spring Awakening. Mm -hmm. um, and the specific production I'm talking about is they did a revival a couple years ago with Deaf West. So half of the actors were deaf and everyone signed throughout it. And they also had um, people who were singing for it as well. Mm -hmm. um, and the end of Act One, it's this song called I Believe. And the lyrics are repeated multiple times. So it's I believe, I believe, I believe all will be forgiven. I believe, I believe, I believe there is love in heaven. Um, and it's very this sort of chant idea. But what really made me think about it for this show is that the way that they staged it is that um, two people dressed as altar servers came down the aisles with incense mm. in a Broadway house. It was really cool. Um, and that idea of having multiple sensories activated because for me as someone who's grown up in the church and has been in multiple services that do incense that just transported me to a whole new mm -hmm. level of this song that i already knew and liked um but i understood it at a deeper level it's interesting because using those very sort of traditional church elements yeah. just reframes the the experience and the the content of what they're saying yeah. you know which has um, you know you, you described it as a as a secular quote yes. and yet it would transport very easily Definitely. into a religious context well, if you knew what was the staging it might not as, <laughs> might not go as cleanly as you seem to think i don't i don't say cleanly just just the the quotation that you shared mm -hmm. you know i believe i believe i didn't don't remember um, exactly. It's all will be forgiven yeah. and there is love in heaven. Absolutely. Just that quote mm -hmm. translates very, very well. I'm sure the context of the show may complexify it and change <laughs> it. Um, but goodness, I hope, uh, you know, love in heaven and all will be forgiven. You know, human lives are messy. Yes. Uh, and, and it's complex enough just in, in living those yeah. things. So your topic's very broad. I feel like I've started every episode with that sentence, <laughs> um, but they all are. So can you just kind of give me a, a basics, course? What are the rituals of the church? What has to happen for it to count? And I don't like the word count, but we're going to use it here. Oh, goodness. I don't like that at all. <laughs> what, what has to happen for it to count? Uh, for it to count is God has to show up 
in yeah. some way. And and what's for me that actually doesn't have much to do with ritual and ceremony yeah. or the objects that are mm-hmm. there. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is really fascinating um, mm-hmm. about and I'm only an expert, not even that much of an expert in Christianity, <laughs> uh, but at least in our faith, we use very ordinary objects yes. in our worship. You know, candles, mm-hmm. bread, wine, you know, basic staples of a meal, mm-hmm. water, a book. Mm-hmm. You know, these are not hard things to acquire in most cases. And, and so these are the simple elements that are meant to be touchstones for us when we gather to invite the presence of God with us. But we can do that. We can worship. We can have ceremony, you know, even even without any of those physical objects, without a set of, uh, of prayers or a specified mm-hmm. set of steps. Um, so the way that I look at, at ritual and ceremony is that those are tools mm-hmm. that help um, one to manage our expectations of mm-hmm. what um, what we're being invited into when we are coming to worship God. Um, it gives you a, a roadmap, a path to navigate mm-hmm. that hopefully can help people to feel like they're in a religious space. It helps to open their spirit, open their soul to to that um, to the presence of God with them, to focus on specific things that they might want to communicate to God. Uh, or to know about their faith, to be thinking about um, the events of the the life of Jesus. Um, when you look at the cycle of the church year, that it's meant to evoke different um, mm-hmm. different parts of, of Christ's own journey. Yeah, and it's color coded. Yeah, and sort of like yeah, uh, and those are all meant to be reminders and and guideposts. But if they become too rigid or too fixed, that's where they can start to become obstacles or constraints on the freedom of God to invite us into a, a different aspect of of the beauty of worship um, so you know ritual is a is a double-edged sword and I know mm-hmm. when you sent me the the topic the question was you know how do our ceremonies uh, invite us in or push us away and and they yeah. do they have the capability um, to do both the other thing about ritual, that I think is important is that it's a thing that you can do with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, when you have these sort of uh, agreed upon guidelines of, of shared shared worship, the rituals are sort of what, what keep you together. But that only works if you know them mm-hmm. and if they're meaningful to you. You have to be educated um, and, uh, and brought into having that kind of shared space and that shared meeting. And that takes time and energy and effort and mentors and neighborliness. Um, and um, sometimes I think our, our churches or our clergy or our fellow members of our, of our church mm-hmm. are better or worse at doing that, that work of making um, the rituals alive and inviting and, mm-hmm. Uh, and opening up the the meaning of them to people. Yeah. yeah. Um, something that I've been thinking about a lot recently, and the fact that I have taken in college many gender study classes that bring mm. up Judith Butler um, is going to lead into this, but this idea of our service being performative mm. and her theory of like 
performance versus performative and what does that mean and how does that change? Can you say a little bit more about how she would distinguish yeah. between performative and performance? So performative is like the act of pronouncing. So the easiest example is like, I now pronounce you husband and wife mm. or partners or That's whatever That's a performative want to action. That You're doing per- something by your words. Yeah. And I think church really lives into that sort mm-hmm. of idea, especially in the communion mm-hmm. um, and the Eucharist mm-hmm. and the idea that we've created this sort of performance that congregants get to watch every week and how does that change how we experience church Hmm. i mean ideally it's not just that you're watching Mm -hmm. right yeah i mean i think ideally um when when the church gathers and worships uh the, the the worship and the work of the ceremony, the work of the ritual, the work of worship is the work of everyone who's there. Uh, I even think about, um, you know, some of my favorite musicians and bands talk mm-hmm. about how, you know, if you go to a concert, it's not just the, the people on stage that mm. are participants in that event. You know, the, the audience is a participant. They have something to contribute through their attentiveness, through their response mm-hmm. to the music. So even if you're in church and you don't utter a single word, mm. you're still part of the performance. It's not that yeah. the performance is, um, is happening and you're outside of it, ideally. Yes. No, I've definitely <laughs> been in a tech week where it's like, they just need a, they need an audience. Yeah, they they'll, just need someone sitting there. They'll figure out the jokes <laughs> once they have an audience. So I definitely understand that idea that it's a partnership almost between the clergy and the vested Mm -hmm. folks and the people in the congregation yeah people have different roles to play just Mm -hmm. like you know in the band the drummer does one thing the guitarist does another thing the audience does another thing the sound techs are doing their thing and it takes everyone who's involved to to create the experience Mm -hmm. so in in worship uh, it's you also have God who is mm-hmm. an active participant in all yeah. of this, who um, is in in one sense um, part of the audience, right? Because mm-hmm. we're directing prayers. We want God to listen to us, to hear us. Um, but on the other hand, it's also it's the Spirit of God working in us to elicit those prayers in the first place, and the the wording. Like mm-hmm. in, in our tradition, in the Episcopal Church, we have set fixed prayers, right? Mm-hmm. The words are, we have a script yeah. uh, that we follow. Um, and that's that's more, in my opinion, you know, you asked, what does it count? Yeah. So if I get the words wrong, you know, yes. if I don't, if I go off book, if I don't quite follow the script in mm-hmm. a worship service, does that mean it doesn't count? It may be jarring for someone. It may snap them out of the the, the space, and that mm. could be problematic because I've I've maybe broken the the ex- well the expect yeah. the expectations. If if yeah. if ritual is what's supposed to um, to connect us and, and bind us together, then if I pull a fast one and you aren't expecting it, you're you're broken out of the the work that we're all doing. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, sometimes that's exactly what cracks um the event open Mm -hmm. in a way for god to be able to add a little bit new and extra um 
so so I always think the um, the rituals and ceremonies and the words of the prayer they're they're containers. They're not what that they're not what count. Mm. They're what we need in order for the things that really matter for the experience, for the event, for the presence of God, for the connection with one another um, that Jesus wants his followers to have. Uh, the the rituals are tools and containers that allow that to to take place um and they can come in different sizes different shapes different forms and still be good i can carry water in all sorts of things i can carry it in a bottle i can carry it in a in a bucket but the important thing is that i'm moving the water to where it needs to go mm-hmm. and so if if god and community and and our faith and the the events of our lives that we've brought um for concerns are the water we find what's what's the right container for this particular um, this particular situation, and that's hopefully what determines the shape mm-hmm. of, of our worship. Yeah. Uh, so you brought up the Book of Common Prayer. I did, um, which is a uniquely Anglican thing. Can you a tell me a little bit about what that even is, mm. the Book of Common Prayer? Let's start with that question. I'll sure. ask the next one after. <laughs> yeah, so 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 the prayer book tradition comes out of the the experience of the the Reformation in England, you know, where the ceremonies and rituals of the church were in the medieval time. They were the province of the clergy, the priests. Mm-hmm. Uh, the priests were the ones who were educated. The service was in Latin, which was not the the language that the people spoke, um, and so it wasn't necessarily a a shared experience in the sense of the roles were very very different it was maybe more of a performance on behalf of the clergy and the way in which the people participated was more of a a personal devotion rather than an attentiveness to what the what the clergy were doing i i gotta be careful about that because I, i don't want to project my idiosyncratic 21st century uh, <laughs> understanding on, you know, uh, 15th century English people who may have been very satisfied with their religious yeah. life and the way that going. But but at least at the time that the church was entering into this period of change and reform, there was a widespread movement that said, well, you know, the clergy aren't necessarily all that great shakes. Why is this only the province? Shouldn't of the clergy shouldn't it be something shared with the the church as a whole and all the people of the church and so the prayer book tradition emerges out of that the idea that that um that our prayers and the ceremonies and the rituals of the church should be held in common hence Mm -hmm. the book of common prayer by the clergy and the people as a whole and that Mm -hmm. there's no great secret or mystery that only the educated trained religious professionals have access to but rather that prayer belongs to the whole people of god and Mm -hmm. the lay as well as the ordained um and so it was compiled in a book that was meant to give guidance for daily prayer for the shared worship um, when you would gather on the lord's day on sunday um and and we've held on to that tradition in the sense of that um, you know Episcopal and Anglican churches have their authorized book of common prayer that contains the core of what we think is um, that that shared ceremony and ritual and narrative. And we can put our own individual spin on it because yeah. a straight prayer book service mm-hmm. is going to look very different at 
my church, uh, St. James in Woonsocket, compared to, say, St. Stephen's here in Providence, or the Church of the Redeemer, or you go down to one of the churches on Aquidneck Island. We may say exactly the same words. We may follow the same script, but the objects that are used, the clothing that the people are wearing, uh, what, the, what the clergy wear, what the acolytes wear, um, the, the pattern of motion in the service. I think, um, so my church doesn't have a center aisle. Mm. You know, we have these box pews uh, and then two sort of offset aisles that, that lead up. So a procession looks very different at St. James mm. than it does at a church where you would go down the side and come up the middle. We don't have a middle. I've done weddings. Mm. Um, <laughs> and and, and the, the bride will come down one aisle and the groom will come down the other um. aisle and, and, and meet in the middle. Um, so the space that you're worshiping in can affect uh, the common prayer of the church. So there's always um, latitude for the specificity of whatever the situation is, the place where you are, the people who are there, the way in which they, they express their faith through, through ritual and shared, um, shared meaning. It's, it's like the heartbeat, and then that sort of connects all of the churches. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's the ideal. Mm-hmm. That's the ideal. Um, whether it ends up cashing out that way in practice <laughs> is always a question. Because, uh, you know, the other principle of the prayer book tradition is that this is not a once and for all. Mm. Uh, you, have the, you have the first prayer book issued and it gets revised just a couple of years later mm. um, to... You know, in the in the view of the the authorities in England that were doing that to more accurately reflect where the people are and the understanding of the faith that was emerging in that time. And then when the American Revolution happened and the Episcopal Church became a separate entity from the Church of England, all of a sudden you have a book of common prayer that has prayers for a king mm-hmm. who isn't your king anymore. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, the church in our country had to say, what needs to change in our rituals and ceremonies to accurately reflect the truth of our existence and, and our experience? Mm-hmm. So there is always that idea in the common prayer tradition that it, it can be adapted and changed to the circumstances of, of your place, your time, mm-hmm. the particular um, concerns that God has placed in the lives of the people at that point. Uh, at our general convention um, that, that met now coming up on almost three years ago, mm-hmm. since the next one is coming next summer, um, there was question whether it was time to look at a revision of our prayer book, which is not even as old as I am uh, yeah. at, at this stage. Um, but it's there's always a pressing um, a question of are our, are our ceremonies, are our rituals adequate? to this moment uh, in the life of the people. Yeah, super quick. If I didn't know what General Convention is, what does that mean? That's the governing body for the entire Episcopal Church. Um, It's an elected body uh, where the different subdivisions of the church all across the United States and internationally send their bishop and then uh, elected representatives, both clerical and lay, to go and consider the affairs of the Episcopal Church and to pass resolutions and sort of uh, take stances to guide and govern the, awesome. the church as a whole. Thank yeah. you for that super quick definition on a very hard well, to you. describe yeah. topic. <laughs> yeah, a lot more goes into it than yeah. that, but yes. And yeah. at the back of the prayer book also has all the canons, correct? 
Oh, uh, it's got um, uh, historical documents, uh-huh. um, uh, um, elements. It doesn't have the like the laws of the church, okay. uh, but it has. Uh, it has the cat. Yeah. Oh, the catechism. Yes, that the catechism. was the word I was looking for. Yeah, which Other is C word. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's an outline of the faith. It's a, sort of a shorthand description of what does our church teach on certain topics mm-hmm. in a question and answer format. So mm-hmm. if you want to know, you know, who is God, that is where you could go to get uh, a brief answer, which probably will raise more questions for you, to be honest. But it's meant to be an invitation to that sort of reflection on what we believe. It's like the spark notes of the Episcopal Church. Yeah, that's, I think that's a really good way of putting it. Absolutely. Um, so a lot of people like live and die by this prayer book and really love it. Mm-hmm. What is something, there's like this untangible quality about having this prayer book and these prayers that link us all. What do you think makes it just sort of so amazing and just click Mm. in that way i think there's a couple of things uh you know one again going to that ideal uh and and also that goes to maybe some of my disappointments because i i think i'm one of those people i wouldn't say i live and die by the prayer book (laughs) but i'm a lifelong episcopalian it has shaped Mm -hmm. um this is the other thing about ritual is that (laughs) it forms us Mm-hmm. It shapes the language and the posture and the way that we relate to God and relate to Jesus. And that's certainly been true for me. Um, but the idea that I could walk into any Episcopal church and what we do when I go there is going to be familiar. It's going to have a shape that's accessible to me, that I understand, that I belong to. Mm-hmm. So it, for me, it's that sense of belonging, of I know my role, I know my place. There are going to be these familiar words and the pattern of the worship that help put me in that space where um, where I'm open to, to God being there. And that's what I'm hungry for when I step into a church, is to, is to be with God and to feel the love of God and to offer my prayers and my... Um, my worship, my adoration, to have that experience of beauty that I mentioned in, in my opening Bible quote. Um, sometimes when I've gone to another Episcopal church, they've used a, you know, a set of prayers or a liturgy that's a little different from what I was expecting. And that can, you know, depending on the mood that I'm in that day, some days I'm ready, all right, I'll roll with this. This is new. This is fresh. Um, and I've been surprised by the beauty of it. And other times I've walked in and it's just kind of fallen flat because I was hungry for, you know, that meat and potatoes <laughs> yeah. that I, you know, that <laughs> comfort food that um, that my soul was looking for mm-hmm. on that particular day. Um, and that's fine. It's good for us to be kept on our toes and not to always um, get what we want. Yeah, it's definitely. I feel like one thing that people usually change is the prayers of the people. That's one that. I think every church does different. Even if you use the prayer book, it's like not actually. Well, and, and that's interesting because in, in the 1979 prayer book, the most recent revision, mm-hmm. they included these six forms for the mm-hmm. prayers of the people in one. And then there's two more um, that are used a little bit less frequently. And a lot of churches just default to using one of those as written when in, they were intended to be models mm-hmm. of this is how you could construct um, 
a, a period of structured communal prayer. Um, but I think some of our churches have found it challenging to sort of take those models and then adapt them and, and work mm -hmm. them. I, I know in, in my life as a priest, there's so many things that are going on day to day that, yeah. that the idea of having to compose a unique set of prayers. But I think in, in a church that has a group of people that can do that mm -hmm. and really tailor the prayers um, to the community, it can be very powerful. Um, the Lutheran Church that I'm pastoring right now, mm -hmm. they have um, a resource and a supplement that does tailored prayers of the people for each Sunday of the year. And they, they draw out the themes of the scripture readings. And I found it really quite lovely oh. um, to have that level of variety week after week after week to the point that I've thought about possibly cribbing them and using them at St. James <laughs> yes. one of these. I haven't pulled yes. the trigger on that yet, yeah. but I'm I'm still considering it. Can you do that? Yeah, yeah, because they cover the same basis. So, okay. you know, the, the provision, this is the other thing about the, the Book of Common Prayer. It has a tremendous amount of flexibility mm -hmm. if you're willing to, to use it. You can you can follow all of the the words in italics, the rules um, that, mm -hmm. that, that say that your worship must include this or should include this, et cetera, et cetera, and still have um, a very different looking worship service. Uh, at the end of it, even though you're well within the, the confines of um, of what the prayer book provides for. One of my yeah. personal ones is I don't really like Palm Sunday service. Mm. I think it's too long <laughs> um, because, and I always go back to the prayer book. I'm like, no, we can stop here. Like, we don't have to do the rest of this. We can stop so you, here. Your and experience do that. has been a kitchen sink Palm Sunday that yeah, has everything that thrown has into the it. The passion. And I'm like, no, yeah. but then, like, you got to come all week. You got to do the whole process. Um, yeah. So, and, and that's something I always am like, but it says in the prayer book, we can stop right here. We can have just this small experience. It is. The, 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 the Palm Sunday service is a concession in some ways yes. that um, not everyone is going to come to the rest of the, okay. the rituals and ceremonies of Holy Week. So yes. we make sure that they get enough of it that, um, that the story makes sense if it proceeds on Easter Sunday a week later. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Which is a hard thing to sort of do both in like mixing those sorts of rituals. Like... Mm. I don't know if I'm phrasing this the best way, but to make sure that you sort of get your biggest bang for your buck <laughs> per service <laughs> and making sure that like you can do sort of everything. And as we said at the beginning, it still counts, mm -hmm. but trying to make sure that you are thoughtful and intentional about what you are doing at the same time. Yeah. I, I always, um, you know, my approach to, to, to worship is, um, I'm pretty flexible um, and I'm willing to follow whatever the preferences of a particular community are, as long as it's done reverently. Mm -hmm. You know, I keep coming back to that, that idea of the beauty of holiness and reverently doesn't necessarily mean, you know, fussy or, uh, mm -hmm. or, or, um, uh, or that you have to be somber and solemn all the time, but there can be great freedom and joy in reverent worship. But the idea is uh, I want, I want God to be what's at the, at the center of what we're doing. Yeah. yeah. One of my original emails to you was this idea of talisman. Mm, yes. Um, and coming back and forth. And the example I use that I'm also going to use here is that we light candles every Sunday. Mm -hmm. um, I also, when I go home, light candles in my own home. But there's something different. Mm. Why? Hmm. 
Well, why don't you tell me, since <laughs> it's your example, what, how do you experience yeah. the difference between the candles lit on the altar and the candle that you light? Yeah, I think that there is something different about the fact that this is being intentional towards that sort of inviting God in that you have been talking about when we do it in the service. As you were mm-hmm. talking about, we use very simple things, but they've sort of been transformed through this ritual of the prayer book or prayers that we use and it there's something crazy about the eucharist and doing that sort of thing where a very simple thing becomes otherworldly mm. mm-hmm. okay but and, and is it your sense that when you take the the object out of that communal context that it that its meaning is shifted yeah, yeah 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 i think that's right um you know it's it's interesting when you invited me on this and and talisman <laughs> was one of the topics i was thinking well in a lot of traditions you know talismans are magic and mm. christianity doesn't really do much in terms of magic the idea of objects that are imbued with you know a kind of power of their own that you can then use you know our, our take really is that um you know, the power is always the power of God, the power mm-hmm. of the Holy Spirit that can't be bound to anything, right? You can't mm-hmm. compel God to show up or to you know, answer your prayers or to do things. But on the other hand, Christianity has this longstanding tradition of blessing things, setting them aside yeah. for holy use. And, you know, in an Episcopal church, you can bless absolutely everything, I yes. mean, you know, from the, you know, the, the, the cup and the plate that you use for communion, the altar itself, the baptismal font, the candles, the things that the acolytes are parading around, banners, mm-hmm. all the clothing that everyone wears often has had a blessing pronounced over it. Um, but I think the, the, um, the difference is that, um, you know, that holiness, that blessed quality, that mm-hmm. setting aside of things is for very specific purposes. It's the power of God for that work. And so it has a context, it has a place. And if you take it out of that context and out of that place, it's no longer the same. So mm-hmm. a candle on the altar is different from the candle that you light at home you may light the candle for prayer it may be evocative uh it may even have been blessed but then that candle is blessed for your own personal devotion which is a different use than the candle that lights god's table where where the holy communion is served mm-hmm. right yeah. but it, it it's about it's about context and it's about place mm-hmm. that and i think that's um that's how you know, blessed objects and holy objects in the church differ from talismans and other traditions that that sort of have the idea that they've been imbued with this power that they carry mm-hmm. on their own that, that isn't as context oriented yeah so one thing that i want to ask you about was um at the end of every baptism there is um the oil with the cross and the you've marked as Christ's own forever mm-hmm. yeah. um but specifically i want to talk about the oil because there's such a thing as a chrism mass is that correct yeah i mean the the oil that's used there specifically is is chrism right and what does that mean and how does that sort of elevate that oil in the way that we've been talking 
Oh boy. So this is, <laughs> this is, this is complicated uh, in Great. some ways. Um, <laughs> uh, so some of it has to do with the, the tr- tradition of confirmation mm-hmm. and the role of bishops in forming the lives of the faithful and their ritual ceremony. So in the Episcopal Church, you're always confirmed. You receive the, the ceremony of confirmation from, from a bishop's hands. Yes. Um, that's sort of one of the things that's distinctive um, to the Episcopal Church. But that oil of chrism mm-hmm. has the ancient connection with the laying on of hands of the bishop and the ceremonies of confirmation. Mm-hmm. So our chrism... Uh, that we use at baptisms to make the sign of the cross and to talk about being marked as Christ's own forever. It's, um, it's been blessed by the bishop of the diocese. So it's a way of the bishop being um, symbolically mm-hmm. present uh, in the ceremony, even though we still have the, the separate you know, ritual of confirmation that mm-hmm. takes place apart from baptism. You know, in the Eastern Orthodox churches, it all happens at the same time. The priest will baptize and chrismate the baby and they're confirmed at that moment oh okay yeah but we still have the the ritual of confirmation that usually happens when you're a teenager or when you're an adult and you and you come uh come to the church um so in some ways it's a shift in our ritual that uh that doesn't entirely line up with our practice or our um our, our uses in the church where where confirmation is reserved to the bishop, but we sort of do part of it when mm-hmm. when a, when an infant is or an adult is baptized. Awesome. What, I don't think I explained that very well, but no, you, <laughs> hopefully we got the gist of it. No, you explained it very well because I didn't know any of that, yeah. um, and I understood it. So that's the important part. But the the other the other uh, the the important thing that I want to leave out because that, that was all an awful lot about bishops and like I said the important <laughs> thing is God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The the oil, the symbol of laying on of hands, the sign of the cross. You know, it's all evoking the sign of the cross evokes Jesus because mm-hmm. the cross is the the symbol of Jesus's sacrifice for the life of the world. Anointing with oil is a sign of the Holy Spirit. And in baptism, you're inviting the Holy Spirit to come into the life of the person being baptized and to, to renew them in new life. We just had the, um, the gospel reading on Sunday about being born from above by water and the Spirit, Jesus with, with Nicodemus um, and that, that baptismal reading. So this is a sign and a symbol of what we believe is happening through the ceremony by the grace of God. That's way more important than whether bishops were involved or not. Yeah, definitely. Um, what is the difference between a confirmation and a baptism? <laughs> we, we don't know. <laughs> Best answer. They, they often say that... Um, the, the joke is that confirmation is a sacrament in search of a theology. You know, <laughs> it's a it's a ritual action that's a tradition that we've held on to and that is important for some people. Witness the parents who are very insistent that their children be confirmed. Oh. Um, but in terms of what exactly is going on there that is different from the gift of the Holy Spirit that comes into someone's life when they are baptized. It's a, it's a confirming of that gift of the spirit. It's a, a renewing of it. Um, but, uh, 
why is that critical? Why is that essential? It's something that just has very, very ancient roots and that has taken on a life of its own and gone in different directions in different Mm. parts of the church. So we insist that bishops confirm in other churches, the local clergy can do it. Um, And, uh, and so there isn't a lot of consistency throughout Christianity about what this means, why we do it, when do we do it um, in the life of, of someone um, who's coming to faith. So that's why I say we, we don't know for sure. It's true. I always think of it as com- because a lot of people are baptized when they're babies mm-hmm. and people are making vows on their behalf, yeah. that confirmation is you making those vows for yourself absolutely i I think certainly in our tradition functionally that's often what it does this Mm -hmm. is the idea that you are making a mature um, profession of faith and you're saying the promises that were made for me in my baptism i am now making those my own Mm -hmm. and that's a valuable thing so definitely i'd say i don't know on a theological level if that's what we are (laughs) saying when we when we confirm someone but i think on a practical level that is definitely what's happening So we've talked a little bit about how these rituals have a certain level of comfort to them, especially Mm -hmm. as two lifelong Episcopalians. I really enjoy being able to walk into any Episcopal church and sort of like basically knowing Mm -hmm. what's going to happen. But how do we make these rituals that are comfortable to us translate to new people who may not know them Mm -hmm. or people who just this is their first time even trying to experience God and how does that sort of alienate it while also being comfort to these other people yeah you've asked the 64 million dollar question here because (laughs) as anyone who's spent time in an Episcopal church knows every object has a funny name Mm -hmm. that you don't use in any other thing you know a cup is a chalice a plate is a paten Mm -hmm. um there's ombres and you know uh all, all of these things and if you don't know what those objects are those words are a barrier they're an obstacle until you learn the lingo similarly someone who walks into a church for the first time all of a sudden everyone around them stands up why did they stand up i don't know oh all of a sudden everyone's dropped down to their knees why are they kneeling Mm -hmm. right there are these conventions that if you've that's why i said you know rituals and ceremonies require education and 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 incorporation and bringing people in it's why i sometimes wonder um we've we've often made a point about talking about how you know we want people to come to the episcopal church and all are welcome um but is the sunday morning worship experience the most welcoming place Mm. for someone to come in or or simply by the nature of how our ceremonies are designed, does that require um, a little bit of of onboarding in a different context? This is hard for me because I I grew up in the Episcopal Church. I don't remember a time, you know, from being a very young, young child where this was not a part of my life and where I wasn't being shaped by it. On the other hand, it was also something that where, um, you know, the church kind of didn't just live in, I grew up in a church called St. Mark in upstate New York, it didn't just live in that building. 
but it came home with me. My sister and I would play church when we when we got home on Sunday, and we would have family traditions at different parts of the church year where we'd be talking about God, talking about faith around our dinner table and, and things like that. Um, and for someone who's walking in cold mm-hmm. and doesn't have that kind of background or didn't have the advantage of growing up and being shaped by all of that, it's hard for someone like me, for whom that was my formative experience, to put myself in their shoes of what is this like? Um, so we, we offer opportunities for classes to come and ask questions, and you know, that's a very cognitive approach mm-hmm. to it. Um, I don't have the answer. I don't know what the best way of doing that is, other than um, I think having folks on hand in your congregation, in your church, who are sort of on the lookout for newcomers, mm-hmm. who are willing to kind of sidle up to them if they're receptive to that, and if they look like they're having trouble navigating the worship service to to give them a help a helping hand. Yeah. That isn't always the answer either, because some people who have set foot in a church for the first time, they've come because they're in a moment of crisis. They aren't sure if they want that mm-hmm. human contact. They came for God, not necessarily for the usher, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. And they may just want to sit in the back and pray. Mm. Um, and I think that's okay too. Um, you don't have to do everything that everyone else is doing around you. That's where I think um, that that old medieval pre-Book of Common Prayer church, <laughs> there is certain wisdom that maybe what someone needs is simply to be in the presence of this religious ceremony going on. And they're on the periphery, but they're still part of it. Uh, and their role is to simply be ministered to by the holiness that is there. Mm-hmm. And if that works and is good for them, maybe they come back the next week and maybe it opens up the curiosity of, all right, so I sensed something here that ministered to me, that opened up holiness to me, that put me in touch with God when I needed it. Why did it work? What is it that that works for this community that knows when to stand, when to kneel, which prayers to say, which ones not to say, when to let the guy in the funny dress up front talk, (laughs) (laughs) you know, all all of that, all of that stuff. Um, It's a challenge. Um, The other thing, and I know we probably don't have time to get into that, (laughs) that, that puzzles me Uh is, um, you know, our, our tradition is very prescriptive. We have this, we have this book of common prayer and a script and we live in a world where um, people are very active participants in producing the the things they can so like what we're doing right here. Yeah. You know, once upon a time, you needed to have a radio studio or a television studio to produce this kind of this kind of contact. Now we can sit in a house with some you know good grade microphones mm-hmm. and create a podcast that can be distributed all around the world on the internet. What does that mean for ritual and ceremony mm. when people expect to be content creators yeah. as well as consumers? How does our tradition need to adapt and change if folks expect to be those active participants mm-hmm. um, and not simply to to follow the script that they've yeah. been given? And how do you not how do you stay true to that ritual without stifling 
someone who wants to come yeah. and maybe wants to do something different. Absolutely. And creating space where both of them can live and breathe and really work together and create a richer church life and mm-hmm. spiritual experience because of that. Yeah. I think those are those are the challenges and the church has always had challenges for its for its worship life and what speaks to the people how how we connect and how we convey the gospel. Um, and this is one of the things that we're wrestling with. I don't have all the answers, but I'm excited to be with the people that I serve trying to figure it out. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, we're kind of coming close to our time, sadly. I understand. Is there, is there any like last thoughts that you're like, this, this is the thing. I can't leave here without being able to have said this. Mm. We have, you know, a wonderful and rich tradition and that I love that has taught me how I talk about God, how I worship God, how I connect to Jesus. And that's a wonderful gift and something that, that we want to share and to pass on to people. But the, the key thing is what does God want from us? Um, I really... Uh, believe that as wonderful as the ceremonies and rituals of the Episcopal Church are, and I love them with all my heart, mm-hmm. God is greater and God is better. If what we're doing is not helping to connect people with God, then we need to figure out what will. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always I come back to, to you know to Jesus's words that um, you know, the Sabbath was made for humankind mm-hmm. and not humankind for the Sabbath. You know, we don't serve the rituals. The rituals serve us. They're mm-hmm. tools. Um, they're tools for that that baseline, which is to invite the presence of God in our lives, to connect us to Christ, to help make our faith come alive, and to nourish us for what we go out to do in the world. And um, and that's what our rituals and ceremonies, our talismans, our holy objects are all meant to do for us. And so um, if there's one thing that I hope the people who end up listening to this uh, take away, it's to remember that it's, that it's always, you know, in the service of one another and of our lives in, in Christ and in God that we do these things together. Wonderful. And if we wanted to see you on a Sunday morning, where could we do that? Uh, you can find me at St. James Church at 28 Hamlet Avenue in Woonsocket, Rhode Island. I'm there at 8 a.m. and then back at 10.30 a.m. And if you want to experience slightly different uh, ceremonies and rituals, you can also find me at St. Mark Lutheran Church in Woonsocket, which is at 871 Harris Avenue. Wonderful. Yep. Thank you so much for being with us, Peter. You're very welcome, Ivy. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a real joy to talk with you today. Thank you for listening to Tea Time Theology. We would like to thank our sponsor, the Episcopal Diocese of Rhode Island, and the Right Reverend Nicholas Nisley, as well as our guests today. You can follow us at Tea Time Theology on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This season of Tea Time Theology is hosted and organized by Ivy Swinsky. Our music is mixed and performed by Mo Ray Akande. The podcast is recorded and edited by me, Taylor Wilkie. Oh,